Amen. All right, we're in Hebrews 10. We're not going to finish it up yet. Uh, I kind of debated whether I ought to, um, but I decided against it. I decided that we're going to hold off and we're going to let, let ourselves sit in this for a little bit and try to take it in and not overlook it and not, not pretend as though it's not there by, by trying to cram more in. So we're in Hebrews 10. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, you know the drill if you haven't been here before. There are some extra Bibles on the bar back here. There are some Bibles over here. We're on page 652 in those. So if you don't have one, go grab one, or we can grab one for you. Let us know. Somebody would be happy to do that. Um, we've been going through Hebrews for the majority of this year, and we've just been going verse by verse and, and trying to take it seriously. And I hope that that's what we do all the time. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on making sure that we understand what the Bible says and trying to draw truth from it rather than bringing our experience and, and our culture and these sorts of things and allowing those things to define what the Bible says. Obviously, none of us is, is purely objective. You're going to interpret some things in light of who you are and, and, and the kind of world that we live in, but there are truths that, that remain true for all people everywhere in all time. Because if they didn't, they, they wouldn't be truths. These things apply to everybody. So when we, when we read this, I want to make sure that we, we are sitting under it and you, we have this attitude of humility that says, maybe I don't understand this fully or maybe it's not exactly what I want to hear. But regardless of those things, I'm going to strive to pay attention to what it says and to allow it to define me. Earlier in Hebrews 4, it talked about the, the word of God being living and active and sharper than any sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the, hearts, of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So this defines us, not the other way around. And what we're looking at today is, is something that probably some of us won't want to hear, um, but some of us need to hear it. So, and, and, and more than just needing to hear it, we need to make sure that other people hear it. It's not something that needs to be swept, swept under the rug and kept a secret. We are in, we're going we're gonna to be in 26 through 31 today, but before we get into that, I'm going to start in 19 and, and kind of start where we were last week and, and continue on because the section that we're in really kind of connects to the previous section. So I'm in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Here we go. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, or great priest, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. Sorry, I lost my place. 
the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, I didn't really emphasize this last week. If you were here last week, uh, I, I attempted to passionately uh, exhort you, as, as the author does, to, to live in light of the gospel. Because he says, since, since all these things have occurred, and he's been spending the last several chapters in Hebrews explaining what he's talking about, what Jesus did, his work. Since Jesus did all those things, we ought to respond in a certain way. And it tells us to do three things. We draw near to God in confidence because we have faith in Christ's sacrifice. We hold fast to that confession in the midst of whatever happens, no matter how hard it is. And we stir each other up. We, we be the church. We love the church because Christ purchased us. So right there at the end, he's saying, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the day. We want to focus on the day for a second because you've, you notice most translations are going to capitalize that word day. That's weird, right? It's referring to something specific. It's not just a day, but the day, a specific day. Um, He's referring to something, and remember that this audience here is Jewish Christians. The original audience to this letter was Jewish Christians. When he says the day drawing near, that, like many other things in Hebrews, is supposed to conjure up things in their minds. It is supposed to make them think of what they know. The day that he's talking about is the day of the Lord, which is mentioned a lot of times in the Old Testament. And it's, it's cataclysmic. It's, it's serious. It's a day of, of judgment that's going to occur. So there's almost like this, right at the end, like I didn't really emphasize this last week, but right at the end, he, there's almost this kind of, ominous tone like you guys need to be stirring each other up to love and good works you need to be holding fast to this confession because recall there's going to be a time when you are going to be held accountable so that's that's really what this section is about being held accountable that day of the lord is is a day when God is going to hold people accountable. If you you don't know a whole lot about the day of the Lord, we're going to read a few verses. And um, it's kind of funny because we we opened up with this song, There's No Place I'd Rather Be Here in Your Love, and then Marvelous Light, like all these peppy, good songs. And and they're, they're absolutely true. And I don't want to diminish what they're saying at all. It's a good song choice. If you are in Christ, you can absolutely sing those things, and you ought to sing them more passionately, right? Because sometimes we just kind of hum along without really feeling those truths. Those things are absolutely true, and they're worth getting excited about when we sing about them. Um, but there, there's a warning that if you're not in Christ, then you don't have anything to get excited about with those songs. Those songs should not evoke good feelings in you. Because the day of the Lord is a day when you're going to be held accountable. Let's read a couple of different things. And I'm, 
Sorry again. I just keep running out of time. Don't put things up on the slides. I'm going to mention a lot of uh, verses. So if somebody needs help, please, somebody who, who can turn pages quickly, uh, help them out. We're going to look first at Amos. There's going to be a lot of prophets in here. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. I'm going to read uh, several, several different verses so that we can get a flavor of what this, of what this is and, and what it entails, because the, the language used is pretty serious. And, and when we get to the verses here in a second, it's going to say we ought to have a fearful expectation of this day. And I want us to kind of feel that. So Amos 5, 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and, met, and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned, on it, leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Zechariah 14. You're going to test your... Your book knowledge here, and mine too. I'm going to be flipping around, trying to find all the minor prophets. This is particularly a, a theme of the minor prophets. So as we read on Sunday nights, we'll, we'll see some of this more and more. Zechariah 14, that's the end of that book. Verses 1 through 3. This is fun. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. Joel. One. If you need notes afterwards, then let me know. And I'll, I'll help you out. Or I can, I said this last week, I can put these notes on the city so we can go back and review these things. Joel 1, 13 through 15. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the, the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Zephaniah, this is the last one, maybe next to last. Zephaniah is a tough one, it's not references often. Zephaniah 1. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. Zephaniah is right after Habakkuk uh, and before Haggai, just in case. It's, I know that we, these don't get brought up a whole lot. <clears throat> Verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, 
a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord in the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Cheery stuff. Um, the reason I talked about right at the beginning about paying attention to what the Bible says and, and going through these things at a steady pace and trying to pay attention to all of it is because this is the sort of thing that we would love to not have to talk about. Most of us, I think. Uh, you, we, we don't want to, know, want to acknowledge this sort of thing. Um, and and when, you, when we go to talk to other people about how awesome Jesus is, usually we don't start off saying, hey, have you, have you heard of the day of the Lord? And I mean, we know those people, some of those preachers too, who just, this is like, this is their cornerstone, fire and brimstone, judgment, it's coming down, it's coming down on you. Um, I, I think that the, the tone has kind of shifted against that, at least a lot of people in here are younger, and, and that has become, I don't know, that's out of fashion, I guess. Like, we don't, we don't want to talk about those sorts of things. Uh, people who just spout out judgment are are wrong, wrong-headed, and, and there's a sense in which, yeah, people who overdo it and all they want to do is go around and, and judge other people, if you don't have the other piece, if you don't have the gospel, then yeah, you are leaving out a huge portion. But, but I think that for us, we have more of a tendency to focus on the good stuff and the gospel, and everything's great, everything's love, mercy, and, and, and nothing wrong is ever going to happen. And, and we, we neglect this side. I think that kind of culturally, this pendulum has kind of swung away from fire and brimstone towards the other direction. But I read all of those things because they're, they're ugly. It's not, it's not good. It's at least, it's not pretty. It is good, but it's not pretty. And we need to have an awareness of what he's talking about. Because the audience that he was talking to in Hebrews, turn back to Hebrews 10, would have known what he was referring to. So let's read 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God.
Okay, so this day that he's talking about, uh, in a lot of instances, it was, uh, it was historical. The prophets talked about this, and, and in some senses, those, those, those days of the Lord were fulfilled, but there's a future fulfillment also. And if you're, if you're kind of used to reading into Old Testament prophecies, then this is not a new idea. The idea that you have this dual fulfillment. So for them, Israel had turned, or, turned against God for about 700 years. After God gave them the law, brought them out of Egypt, told them, I'm going to love you, you're going to be my people. They said, we don't need you, we don't want you, we're going to go do what we want to go do. And as we've been reading in Hosea, God compared them to prostitutes. Like we have entered, God says, we've entered into this, this covenant relationship. You, you are mine. I, I, bought, I bought you with a price. I, I gave up things to have you. And now I want, I want to be with you. I want to love you. And, and Israel ran away from that. 700 years. That's a long time. And all these prophets are coming up towards the end of, it started in like 700s. Um, they start saying, listen, you, you have no more claim to this covenant that you have broken. God is going to exact discipline on you. And in a sense, that historical reality occurred. Assyria came, wiped out Israel. And it was ugly. It was as ugly as those descriptions. And then, much later, 586, I think it is, um, Babylon comes in, wipes out Judah. And it's ugly. And it's a mess. So in a sense, those, those things were, were written into history and those things did occur, but they also have a future fulfillment, an, an eschatological impact. Like, we're eschatology being end times, the last days. So... There was a historical aspect where discipline occurred, and there's going to be a future aspect that has not yet happened. Jesus talks about this all the time. I'm not going to go read through these. Um, in Matt, I'll just list off some. So if you're taking notes, I'll try to do. I'll try to go slowly. But Jesus is one of the the people in the New Testament that talks about judgment the most. In Matthew 10:15. And then Matthew eleven twenty two through twenty four. These are all in Matthew. Matthew twelve thirty six. Twelve forty one and forty two. Matthew twenty three thirty three. All of those are references where Jesus is talking to people and he's saying, "There is a day coming, a day of judgment." And Jesus is the one who, who talks about this, and he talks about it being future. So this is after, after Israel has been disciplined, after all these harsh things have occurred, he still refers to this as being something that is coming. And not only that, he says that he's going to sit in judgment over them. Uh, I think Matthew 16, and I may turn to this one, Matthew 16, 27, since I just have one for this one. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He's going to be the judge at this day of the Lord. There's another reference. We don't have to read it, but 2 Timothy 4, 
one. And Christ is going to separate those who are righteous from those who are evil. The outcome is based on our reception. The way, the way you are separated is based on your reception to the message of the gospel. Believers receive life, John 5, 24. And the disobedient are already under wrath, John 3, 36. Okay, so back to Hebrews. Verses 26 and 27. Judgment, fear, fury, a fire that will consume the adversaries. Which testament are we in right now? The book of Hebrews is, is in the New Testament, but it sounds like something in the Old Testament, right? It sounds like the sorts of things that we just read. And that... I want to point that out. That is interesting because some people misunderstand something about God. And they do so to their own harm and to the harm of many others who they would attempt to teach. Some people believe that God somehow changed over the course of time, particularly between the Old and New Testaments. They think that there must have been some sort of evolution in his character where before there was, there was wrath and anger and hate, but now there's just love and mercy and peace. And those things overcome all those former things. They think that his, that, that those things, love, mercy, they, they, they overcome his wrath. And now everybody is washed in, in those, in that mercy. However, I would say that such of you is, is ignorant of who God is. God does not change. Numbers 23, 19. I seem to use this a lot, but it is comforting. It is helpful. Uh, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God doesn't change, and he doesn't need to, because he's perfect. And he always was perfect. And there, there neither was anything lacking, and there is not now anything lacking in himself. So he doesn't need to evolve on these issues. The wrath of God against sin, which we read about in the Old Testament, is just as hot and fervent and unchanging today as it was thousands of years ago. There, there, like I said, it's pretty popular today to minimize these things and even go past that. Not to just minimize them and to try to pretend like they're not there, but to actually say, those things don't exist. There is a a way of thinking called universalism, which essentially says they're either, there's a couple of different flavors of it, different, uh, different justifications or arguments used for that, uh, that perspective, but, but kind of broadly, they either think that there is no judgment or God's love and grace will overcome any judgment in the end and that God's love for everyone will win. 
smiles, sorry. Um, but to do that, you have to get rid of a portion of God's character. You have to so emphasize his love and mercy that you neglect the fact that he is also just and righteous. You actually have to get rid of those things. And, and you have to make Jesus less than he is in order to hold to that viewpoint. Because God is just. God is righteous. His righteousness and justice demand that there be a punishment for sins. And we, we've been talking about that over and over through Hebrews. Um, sin leads to death. And there's a punishment for the sin. Christ's death on the cross was sacrificial, and it's offered to, to all of those who place their faith in Christ and live in light of Christ's death. In Jesus' death, he took on our sin, and he absorbed the wrath of God against sin. This verse here in Hebrews 26 says that those who deliberately go on sinning after receiving knowledge of the gospel will have no claim to Christ's atoning work. No claim to Christ's atoning work. And yet some people want to argue that in the end, everybody gets a free pass. Everybody receives eternal life. Everybody's glorified. They're with Christ. And... Holy Spirit, I pray, that, I pray that you would reveal the truth of these things to us, that you would keep us from ignorance, make us wise, help us to understand these things. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would, would, would keep us from believing in that. If you don't have the hope of Christ's work to protect you from the wrath of God, then you have no hope. If you believe that everyone gets a free pass, even if they reject the gospel, then you, you have to think remarkably little of both the wrath of God against sin and of Christ's work and, and the importance of what Jesus did. You have to demean those things in order to say... It's going to be okay in the end. This doesn't really matter. We get a pass. God's wrath against sin is infinite. And so to quench it, you have to soak it up in all of its infiniteness. And what Hebrews has been saying is that Christ alone is the means by which this infinite wrath against sin can be absorbed. And his sacrifice only counts for those who by faith are made alive in Christ. Remember, they, he, he's already made this comparison that, that way back when, when they offered sacrifices, they had to do so all the time because it was never effective. But Christ did it once and, and perfectly satisfied it. So the reason he was able to do that is because he's God in the flesh. He was infinitely undeserving of that punishment. And he was God. He was an infinite being. He could infinitely take on God's wrath. So he is the only one 
who can, who can absorb this in its entirety. For those who have no faith in Christ, they will absorb the infinite wrath of God over a period of an infinite eternity. I hope that, I hope that, that really sinks in. That... That in order, in order to, to give everybody a free pass, you have to demean what Jesus did. I think, I think that you see that even more here in these next couple of verses, that kind of concept. In verses 29, or sorry, 28 and 29, He says, here in Hebrews, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So those who who go on and sin deliberately and rebuke God in the old covenant, they had had courts, they had trials, and people would come against them, and they would would give testimony against somebody. And they would say, in the the presence of two witnesses, two or more, then these, these people would be condemned, and they would be stoned. And that was a serious thing. And we see, just when we read the Old Testament and see the day of the Lord that was promised, the discipline that was brought onto them, that was a serious thing. Because the, the cause for the day of the Lord was just this rampant disobedience in Israel. So God just said the whole thing. We're going to take care of the whole thing. So how, how serious is that picture, having seen some of those things? But the author of Hebrews says in verse 29, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? The, the mercy and love of God is absolutely on those who are in Christ and it's best demonstrated by what Christ did. The love and mercy that you see in the New Testament and that's promised is all wrapped up in who Christ is. It's completely about what He came and did. So when you see, when you hear about Christ coming and dying for us even while we were sinners, that's the love and mercy of God that's extended towards us. But it's all built up in Jesus. So if you say, I don't need Jesus. Verse 29. I'm not going to point out something new. But that's what happens. Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you get? So so not only do you get punished in the same sense, it's worse. It's worse. Because the love that God has for us is in Jesus. So to maintain a position of saying that you know what, in the end, doesn't matter if you're Buddhist, doesn't matter if you're Muslim, doesn't matter if you're Hindu, doesn't matter what you believe, in the end, God's love is going to overcome all of that, and, and everybody is going to be forgiven, everybody's going to go to heaven, things are going to be great. To believe all of that, you, you have to ignore the fact that that love that God showed was in Christ. It's already been shown. And that mercy that he has on all people, and yes, he has mercy on all people, it's all about who Christ is. 
Christ's death was for everybody in the sense that it is offered to any, anybody and everybody, everywhere, at all times. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, that is for you. But to reject that is to essentially reject God's love and mercy. And that's what people who hold to universalism, I don't think that they get that. To reject Jesus is to reject God's love and mercy. I know that this is not like everybody's getting excited. The mercy of God towards towards people was purchased in, in Christ. And the love that we now experience is not a result of God warming up to us. Or, or loving us unconditionally without requiring any punishment for sin. Or, or from changing his mind. The love and mercy and peace of God is Christ. So, I hope, I hope, that, I hope that we read those horrible descriptions. And, and that we get a sense of what... Verse 27 is talking about when he says, a fearful expectation of judgment. I read those verses so that you can get a sense of that, what that fearful expectation is. And I hope that we read this seriously. So that if we're kind of, we're on the fence and saying, take it or leave it. Some people say it doesn't matter because in the end, I'm good because God loves everybody. The love of God is Christ. And today, I am telling you that Christ died for you, that we were sinners, and that while we were sinners, God sent Jesus. Jesus came, and he said, I'm going to take all that wrath, I'm going to take on all that sin, and I'm going to absorb every bit of that. And all you have to do in response is put faith in Christ to, to awaken in you Christ's likeness. And that, that when you put your faith in Christ, when you stand in front of God, he, does, he no longer looks on your sin. He looks to Jesus and sees that Jesus totally absorbed perfectly every bit of that wrath, and there's no longer any wrath that, that spills onto you. That's the gospel. And you having heard it, you respond to it. And this is saying that if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving that knowledge, not only is that same kind of judgment that it talks about on you, it's, it's worse because not only did you reject the, the concept that God wanted you to be holy, you also rejected his, his life raft to you, his, his saving grace towards you and said, I don't need it. And it, it, can, it compares that to trampling underfoot Jesus. And God will not have it. He will not have that. So, at first warning, this seems to be a shotgun blast directed at all of us. Because surely we all still sin. Because we're not perfect. So, like, if everybody in this room is, is freaking out right now and is like, well... It says, if we go on sinning deliberately, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? Who is it that, that this is describing? 
If we're honest with each other, we could probably say that every one of us has sinned deliberately in the last several days. Maybe this morning. Are we all then currently under the wrath of God? This is serious. We need to figure this out. Should we right now be in what he talks about, fearful expectation of judgment? We need to take a closer look at this and determine where we stand. Thankfully, the author describes those who are to be judged in several ways. So I'm going to, I'm going to list these and hopefully this will help us to determine where, where am I in this? How does this apply to me? First of all, verse 26, they go on sinning deliberately, willfully. This isn't just talking about one sin. Nor is it talking about a lifetime sin that most of us are going to experience even as we become sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is referring to a state of being in continual, present, and ongoing sin with intention. This does not have in view somebody who is struggling to live like Christ and yet sins. Paul, even Paul, the apostle, whose faith and works were greater than most Christians, I think it's fair to say, said that he struggled. In Romans 7, he says that he struggles. And and it's probably worth reading about this. In Romans 7, 18 through 24... He talks about this. Again, Romans 7, 18-24. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body body of death? So, Paul is right there with him. And, and we do need to take our sin seriously. And we do need to say, I do not need to keep on living this way. But the question is, is there this internal struggle between wanting to do the will of God while still living in a broken and sinful state? The thing you want to ask yourself is, is there a struggle within me to do the will of God against my sinful nature? Or have I willfully given myself over to continual sin? I think that we can make that distinction. Uh, So it's someone who kind of has that stance. Verse 27 is related when he talks about um, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries adversaries. So that's, again, that same kind of sense where it's not just this one person who messed up that one time. I'm sorry I took this thing when I was six years old and I didn't mean to. Well, I did mean to, but I'm sorry. Like it's not, it's not that kind of attitude, that person who comes and repents and says, I don't want to be that person. 
It's the person who, who sets themselves against God and who says, I don't, I don't need to change. I don't need to be transformed. I don't need what Jesus has. I can go on and do whatever I want to do. Adversaries. Again, in verse 29, he says that they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. So, this relates to our receiving of the gospel. The Son of God, Jesus, laid down his life for everybody to receive him as their substitute. And instead of receiving him as their life and hope, they considered it nothing. They trampled him underfoot. So they heard it and they said, okay, whatever, moving on. And you didn't see that as something that's precious, something that you need. So do, how do you see Jesus? How do you see the gospel? Do you see it as something that you personally need? Verse 29 also says that they regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. Um, if you're used to kind of the, the language of, of Leviticus, you have these holy things and then you have these common things. And this is kind of the comparison that it sets up here. This idea that they didn't treat Christ's blood, Christ's sacrifice as holy. They didn't treat it as something infinitely worthy. They treated it as something common, worth being thrown out. Is that your attitude? Do you place any value in what Christ has done? 29 says they outraged the spirit of grace. Uh, ESV says outraged. Several different versions, NIV, I think, uh, NASB, some others, say insulted. For me, that was helpful to see it as insulted rather than outraged. Um, because that's almost like, like an active kind of verb, right? You, you have actively done something against the Holy Spirit. So this has been mentioned in Hebrews before. Grace comes in the form of Christ, saving knowledge. The Holy Spirit is, is tugging at you. And... and you say, I no longer need that. I no longer need you and what you have to provide. So again, when we're examining ourselves, have we, have we insulted the Holy Spirit when, when we are being given the truth of the gospel? Do we essentially rebuke it? Do we, do we say, I do not need that. Get away from me. Is that our attitude? <clears throat> Verse 26, going back, it says that the kind, of the kind of people that he's talking about, he's talking to a Christian audience, right? He, he's at least talking to a church. He's talking about people who, in verse 26, have received that knowledge. And in verse 30, it's interesting because he, he references his people. It says... The Lord will judge his people. What, is this, what does this mean? I think that he's issuing this warning to the church, realizing that not everyone who considers themselves part of the church is actually in the body of Christ. And there's this, there's this kind of there's this separation where you have, and it was the same in Israel, so it's helpful to think about the Old Testament, because he said uh, in the Old Testament, I will judge Israel. But he had also promised salvation for Israel. 
What that meant was, just because you are in Israel, just because you're a descendant, a physical descendant of Abraham, does not mean that you can go on doing whatever you want. Faith was what purchased righteousness. So you had to have faith in God. So there were some who were Israelites who were killed and placed under judgment. And the same thing happens now inside of the church. Just because you come in here, just because you affiliate with us, does not necessarily mean that you are not under judgment. It's all about your attitude towards the gospel, your attitude towards Jesus. So coming inside of these four walls, signing a membership covenant with us, those ought to be responses that, that, that overflow from faith. But if they're just kind of these actions that you are taking to try to secure yourself with God without actually paying attention to the gospel, then there is, there is no promise of grace on you. The last one here that kind of describes the people that he's talking to is the challenge. He says uh, in verse 29... How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Sanctified. Tough. And I'm not saying that I have perfect answers. Hebrews 3.14 says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He's talking about people who, in some sense, have been sanctified, but this is confusing for us, and I don't want to skip it because I don't want to, like I said, we want to pay attention to the whole Bible, and I don't want you to think he's dodging the tough questions. This is a tough one. He says, By the covenant by which they were sanctified is the one that they are turning away from. And, and they, they no longer have anything but fearful expectation of judgment. What do we say then? Can, can, people, can people be sanctified and then judged? You're going to get a variety of opinions on this. And I am not perfect. Nobody in here is perfect. I... I think that if you look back to things like, and this is present throughout Hebrews, but in 3.14 he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I think that that, what that is saying, and I recognize you could probably read that two ways, but I think that what this is saying is, evidence in your life, that you have put, put faith in the gospel. Evidence that the Holy Spirit has come to reside in you will cause you to endure and will ensure that you share in Christ. And... And I think that that's true 
for a lot of reasons. But in Hebrews, he keeps talking about assurance. He keeps talking about assurance. Over and over and over. Even earlier on in this chapter, in chapter 10, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. How could we ever have full assurance if, it's, if this is something that it's like you're teetering on all the time and, and you could fall down at any moment? I think that the Holy Spirit works in us to produce this faith and to cause us to endure so that those who are sanctified in, a, in an eternal sense are in Christ. So then what is he talking about? When he says that those who have profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified are going to be under judgment. I think there's this sense in which, kind of, kind of within the context that he's talking about here, he says, you were given a great grace. The same way that the Israelites were given a great grace because God came and he said, I'm going to make you my people. And I'm going to share this information with you. I'm going, to, I'm going to pour out grace on you like no other country. And they rebuked it. The same thing can happen today where you receive the knowledge of Christ and you're, you receive this grace that in a sense it affects us and, and, it, and it can produce in us like this change in attitude and to, to the point that we're in church and we're living among holy things and, and we claim Christ but, but it's possible to, to not be secure just because we are among holy things just because God has poured out grace on us and I, I think that's the sense that is here good point of discussion for community groups that'll be a tough one um, study up that's a tough one. And, and I don't want to pretend like, like I'm perfect. Like I, I, I am God and I know what is happening here. And I can, I can tell you A to Z, here's everything that this means. There, there are certainly differences in interpretation there. But I don't think that um, we have to quibble about that as much given how much else is here. I don't think that this should be a point of contention here. Because if we don't, if we don't know fully, then we don't know fully, and that's okay. There are plenty of other verses in here that point out where we are. What is your present attitude towards Christ? How have you responded? Is the Holy Spirit working in your life? Those things are going to be determinative. So, I think, I think during this response time, we ought to pray. And, and say, Holy Spirit, please speak to me. You tell me where I am right now. Where am I? If indeed you are unsure. But I think that, that those things, there's a lot of evidence there to kind of, or a lot of signs to point you in one way or the other. Where are you? Are you repentant? Are you not? <clears throat> what we need to do in response to this is to realize we're all broken and we're all sinning. But that doesn't need to be our attitude. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Christ purchased the Holy Spirit in us to, to transform us. So our attitude, rather, rather than saying, I don't need it, I don't want it, I'm going to go do what I want to do. Rather than that, 
you humble yourself, you turn, you repent, and you say, actually, you just turn back to the previous verses and do those things that he talks about. When he says, since Jesus has done these things, we ought to respond this way. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Faith in what? Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. Your sin has no hold over you if you are putting your faith in Jesus. Because we can have full assurance. We have confidence because of what Jesus has purchased for us. We draw near to Him. That's what we do in response. We hold fast the confession of that hope without wavering. So we don't, you don't have to sit here and teeter and wonder, oh, any day now I could lose this. No. Put your faith in Christ and you will never have any reason to fear. And stir one another up. Be the church. This is what we talked about last week. Go back and listen to it on SoundCloud. It's online. Stir each other up to love and good works. Don't neglect the church. Encourage each other. All the time. Until this day of judgment comes. Because though there is judgment on that day, it brings hope. I, I intentionally left it out. There, there was, there's hope to this day. It's not just all damnation and hellfire and, and awful stuff. It is that. And it is not less than that, but it is more than that. Christians, for us, our sins have already been judged on the cross. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And the righteousness of God through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You also see it in Romans 8. Remember, we were reading Romans 7 just a second ago and, and, and Paul is almost despairing. Like, what is... Back to um, Romans 7 verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He feels this. He feels convicted over the sin that's in his life. And he knows it can't stay that way. But he says, next verse, you might have already read it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He did what we could not do. And, and now, not only are those who put their faith in Christ not judged because that, that infinite wrath has been absorbed, we actually get rewarded. Which is unthinkable. Not only do you avoid the bad stuff, good things will happen. And the Old, the Old Testament prophets talked about this also, the hope that 
that God was going to restore people. We don't have to read all these, but Amos 9, 11 through 15, I'll just list these off so you can go read them yourself and maybe talk about them some more in CG. Amos 9, 11 through 15, Zephaniah 3, 8 through 20, and Zechariah 14, 6 through 9. Later on, even in Hebrews, next week we'll talk about this. In chapter 10, verse 35, it says that there will be a great reward for those who endear and draw near to God in confidence through Christ. Verse 10:35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. We, we need to have a presence of mind about us that says that there is going to be a judgment and that God does not change and, and that sin is serious and that the wrath of God against sin is infinite. But that, looking at those verses in the Old Testament and seeing the, the horrible way in which those were dealt with needs to make us all the more value what Christ has done. And... And to lean on Him and to put our faith in Him, to draw close to Him and to love that, love Him all the more. Because now, because of what He's done, there's no, there's no condemnation here, but there's, there's not just hope that our, our sins have been forgiven, but there's hope that there's going to be a reward. Let's pray. Father God, help us to value Christ. Help us to value what he said and what he did for us, even though we didn't deserve it. And we still don't deserve it. Don't allow us to ignore God's wrath. And don't allow us to be blind to our need for a Savior. Don't allow us to be blind to our own sin. But cause us to to lament who we are. And to say, like Paul, "I I can't do any better. I need somebody to save me. Cause us to have that attitude and cause us to look towards Christ knowing that He perfectly dealt with all of this. Cause us to hold fast to that and to not rebuke that, to not turn away from it as though, it's un, as though it's common, as though it's not necessary, as though it's not precious. Please work in us. Cause us to do all those things that we talked about last week, that your word talks about. Cause us to draw near at this time. Draw near. In full, assur- in full assurance of who Jesus is. Cause us to hold fast to this in the midst of whatever life brings. Whatever the world would have us believe or do. And cause us to be closer as a church because we realize that the- these are serious things. And we don't need to just let each other drift away because there is a fearful expectation of judgment for those who just drift away. Cause us to love each other 
deeply by the Holy Spirit and give us a unity in Christ, cause us to just all point towards Christ, and during this time, cause us to respond. And in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if this is your first time here, thanks. That was kind of long. I'm just looking down at the timer here.